0: Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries Podcast. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and it's great to have you with us today. Many of you have traveled to Arizona's Grand Canyon National Park, and those of you who haven't, if you can be impressed by truly wondrous things, should put it at the top of your list of places to visit. It is a wonder to behold. The beauty of the geological formations, the grandness of the huge deep canyon, and the mysteries it holds, all capture the imagination. The canyon is 277 miles long, up to 18 miles wide, and reaches over a mile in depth. The Colorado River runs along its bottom. President Theodore Roosevelt was a major proponent of saving the park from development and was the causal factor for an act of Congress under President Woodrow Wilson, which made it a national park in 1919. The saga of Kincaid's cave, within the park, begins with a 1909 newspaper story of the finding of the remains of an ancient civilization inside of an extensive cave in Marble Canyon, one of the hundreds of scenic spots that make up the Grand Canyon. The newspaper article was a scorcher, which turned historical societies into hysterical societies, for a while anyway, and threatened to give a wholly unexpected genealogical past to the many Indian tribes in Arizona. For this reason alone, it raised interest everywhere. And more often than not, the word hoax became attached to it. The newspaper story also claimed that this grand discovery of a cave, containing evidence of a long-past civilization, was a part of the Smithsonian expedition. Yet the Smithsonian has denied any connection with the Kincaid's cave story or any story of Egyptian or Asian artifacts being found in the Grand Canyon or anywhere in North or South America, for that matter and no person named Kincaid or Professor Jordan could be found anywhere, nor were any artifacts ever photographed or displayed. Yet conspiracy theorists insist that the Smithsonian is covering up something, perhaps in an attempt to save the ethnicity of the American Indian? Who knows? And when it comes to the origins of the American Indian, much of that is still being debated today anyway. The Cherokees believe they come from the lost tribe of Israel. The Carolina Lumbees believe they're tied with the lost colony of Roanoke, and all tribes have different theories of origin. By the time you've heard the whole story, you'll know much more about the King Cade's cave story and the answer to the hoax question, as well as some interesting history. And I promise you it will be an entertaining journey, as well as a story worthy of telling on your next trip to Arizona or the Smithsonian. But first, I'm taking you back to 1909, March 12th of that year, to be exact. On that day, it was just a teaser paragraph in the paper, designed to raise an eyebrow or two. The headline, G.E. Kincaid reaches Yuma. G.E. Kincaid of Lewiston, Idaho, arrived in Yuma after a trip from Green River, Wyoming, down the entire course of the Colorado River. He is the second man to make this journey, and came alone in a small skiff, stopping at his pleasure to investigate the surrounding country. He left Green River in October, having a small covered boat with oars, and carrying a fine camera, with which he secured over 700 views of the river and canyons, which were unsurpassed. Mr. Kincaid says one of the most interesting features of the trip was passing through the sluiceways at Laguna Dam. He made this perilous passage with only the loss of an oar. Some interesting archaeological discoveries were unearthed, and altogether the trip was of such interest that he will repeat it next winter in the company of friends. That was the article. But as it turned out, G. E. Kincaid didn't wait to return the next year with friends before releasing the story of the century. A few weeks later, the headline was expanded into a full article. It read Arizona Gazette, April 5, 1909. Explorations in Grand Canyon. Mysteries of immense high cavern being brought to light. Jordan is enthused. Remarkable finds indicate ancient people migrated from Orient. Then the article read, The latest news of the progress of the explorations of what is now regarded by scientists as not only the oldest archaeological discovery in the United States, but one of the most valuable in the world, which was mentioned some time ago in the Gazette, was brought to the city yesterday by G. E. Kincaid, the explorer who found the great underground citadel of the Grand Canyon during a trip from Green River, Wyoming, down the Colorado in a wooden boat to Yuma several months ago. According to the story related to the Gazette by Mr. Kincaid, the archaeologists of the Smithsonian Institute, which is financing the expeditions, have made discoveries which almost conclusively prove that the race which inhabited this mysterious cavern, hewn in solid rock by human hands, was of Oriental origin, possibly from Egypt, tracing back to Ramses. If their theories are borne out by the translation of the tablets engraved with hieroglyphics, the mystery of the prehistoric peoples of North America, their ancient arts, who they were and whence they came, will be solved. Egypt and the Nile and Arizona and the Colorado will be linked by a historical chain running back to ages which staggers the wildest fancy of the fictionist. Subheader, a thorough examination. Under the direction of Professor S. A. Jordan, the Smithsonian Institute is now prosecuting the most thorough explorations, which will be continued until the last link in the chain is forged. Nearly a mile underground, about 1,480 feet below the surface, the long main passage has been delved into to find another mammoth chamber from which radiate scores of passageways, like the spokes of a wheel. Several hundred rooms have been discovered, reached by passageways running from the main passage, one of them having been explored for 854 feet, and another 634 feet. The recent finds include articles which have never been known as native to this country, and doubtless they had their origin in the Orient. War weapons, copper instruments, sharp-edged and hard as steel indicate the high state of civilization reached by these strange people. So interested have the scientists become that preparations are being made to equip the camp for extensive studies, and the force will be increased to 30 or 40 persons. Subheader. Mr. Kincaid's Report. Mr. Kincaid was the first white child born in Idaho and has been an explorer and hunter all his life, 30 years having been in the service of the Smithsonian Institute. Even briefly recounted, his history sounds fabulous. First, I would impress that the cavern is nearly inaccessible. The entrance is 1,486 feet down the sheer canyon wall. It is located on government land and no visitor will be allowed there under penalty of trespass. The scientists wish to work unmolested, without fear of archaeological discoveries being disturbed by curio or relic hunters. A trip there would be fruitless, and the visitor would be sent on his way. The story of how I found the cavern has been related, but in a paragraph I was journeying down the Colorado River in a boat, alone, looking for mineral. Some forty-two miles up the river from the El Tobar Crystal Canyon, I saw on the east wall stains in the sedimentary formation about 2,000 feet above the riverbed. There was no trail to this point, but I finally reached it with great difficulty. Above a shelf which hid it from view from the river was the mouth of the cave. There are steps leading from this entrance some 30 yards to what was at the time the cavern was inhabited, the level of the river. When I saw the chisel marks on the wall inside the entrance, I became interested— Securing my gun, and went in. During that trip, I went back several hundred feet along the main passage till I came to the crypt in which I discovered the mummies. One of these I stood up and photographed by flashlight. I gathered a number of relics which I carried down the Colorado to Yuma, from whence I shipped them to Washington with details of the discovery. Following this, the explorations were undertaken. The main passageway is about twelve feet wide narrowing to nine feet toward the farther end. About 57 feet from the entrance, the first side passages branch off to the right and left, along which, on both sides, are a number of rooms about the size of ordinary living rooms of today, though some are 30 by 40 feet square. These are entered by oval-shaped doors and are ventilated by round air spaces through the walls into the passages. The passages are chiseled or hewn as straight as could be laid out by an engineer. The ceilings of many of the rooms converge to a center. The side passages near the entrance run at a sharp angle from the main hall, but toward the rear they gradually reach a right angle in direction. Over a hundred feet from the entrance is the cross hall, several hundred feet long, in which are found the idol, or image, of the people's god, sitting cross-legged with a lotus flower or lily in each hand. The cast of the face is oriental, The idol almost resembles Buddha, though the scientists are not certain as to what religious worship it represents. Taking into consideration everything found thus far, it is possible that this worship most resembles the ancient people of Tibet. Surrounding this idol are smaller images, some very beautiful in form, others crooked-necked and distorted shapes, symbolical, probably, of good and evil. There are two large cactus with protruding arms one on each side of the dais on which the god squats. All this is carved out of hard rock resembling marble. In the opposite corner of this cross hall were found tools of all descriptions made of copper. These people undoubtedly knew the lost art of hardening this metal, which has been sought by chemicals for centuries without result. On a bench running around the workroom was some charcoal and other material probably used in the process. There is also slag and stuff similar to mat, showing that these ancient smelted ores, but so far no trace of where or how this was done has been discovered, nor the origin of the ore. Among the other finds are vases or urns and cups of copper and gold, made very artistic in design. The pottery work includes enameled ware and glazed vessels. Another passageway leads to granaries, such as are found in Oriental temples. They contain seeds of various kinds. One very large storehouse has not yet been entered, as it is twelve feet high and can be reached only from above. Two copper hooks extend on the edge, which indicates that some sort of ladder was attached. These granaries are rounded, as the materials of which they are constructed, I think, is a very hard cement. A grey metal is also found in this cavern, which puzzles the scientists, for its identity has not been established. It resembles platinum. Strewn promiscuously over the floor, everywhere, are what people call cat's eyes, a yellow stone of no great value. Each one is engraved with the head of the Malay type. Paragraph Header The Hieroglyphics On all the urns or walls over doorways and tablets of stone which were found by the image are the mysterious hieroglyphics, the key to which the Smithsonian Institute hopes yet to discover. The engraving on the tables... Probably has something to do with the religion of the people. Similar hieroglyphics have been found in southern Arizona. Among the pictorial writings, only two animals are found. One is of prehistoric type. Subchapter Header The Crypt The tomb or crypt in which the mummies were found is one of the largest of the chambers, the walls slanting back at an angle of about thirty five degrees. On these are tiers of mummies. "'each one occupying a separate hewn shelf. "'At the head of each is a small bench, "'on which is found copper cups and pieces of broken swords. "'Some of the mummies are covered with clay, "'and all are wrapped in a bark fabric. "'The urns or cups on the lower tiers are crude, "'while as the higher shelves are reached, "'the urns are finer in design, "'showing a later stage of civilization. "'It is worthy of note that all the mummies examined so far "'have proved to be male.' "'no children or females being buried here. "'This leads to the belief that this exterior section "'was the warriors' barracks. "'Among the discoveries, no bones of animals have been found, "'no skins, no clothing, no bedding. "'Many of the rooms are bare but for water vessels. "'One room, about 40 by 700 feet, "'was probably the main dining hall, "'for cooking utensils are found here. "'What these people lived on is a problem.' though it is presumed that they came south in the winter and farmed in the valleys, going back north in the summer. Upwards of 50,000 people could have lived in the caverns comfortably. One theory is that the present Indian tribes found in Arizona are descendants of the serfs or slaves of the people which inhabited the cave. Undoubtedly, a good many thousands of years before the Christian era, a people lived here which reached a high stage of civilization. The chronology of human history is full of gaps. "'Professor Jordan is much enthused over the discoveries "'and believes that the find will prove of incalculable value "'in archaeological work. "'One thing I have not spoken of may be of interest. "'There is one chamber of the passageway "'to which is not ventilated, "'and when we approached it, a deadly, snaky smell struck us. "'Our light would not penetrate the gloom, "'and until stronger ones are available, "'we will not know what the chamber contains. "'Some say snakes, but others boo-hoo this idea.' and think it may contain a deadly gas or chemicals used by the ancients. No sounds are heard, but it smells snaky just the same. The whole underground installation gives one of shaky nerves the creeps. The gloom is like a weight on one's shoulders, and our flashlights and candles only make the darkness blacker. Imagination can revel in conjectures and ungodly daydreams back through the ages that have elapsed till the mind reels dizzily in space. SUBCHAPTER HEADER, AN INDIAN LEGEND In connection with this story, it is notable that among the Hopi Indians the tradition is told that their ancestors once lived in an underworld in the Grand Canyon, till dissension arose between the good and the bad, the people of one heart and the people of two hearts. Macheto, who was their chief, counseled them to leave the underworld, but there was no way out. The chief then caused a tree to grow up and pierced the roof of the underworld, and then the people of one heart climbed out. They tarried by Passizvi Red River, which is the Colorado, and grew grain and corn. They sent out a message to the temple of the sun, asking the blessing of peace, goodwill, and rain for people of one heart. That messenger never returned, but today at the Hopi villages at sundown can be seen the old men of the tribe out on the housetops, gazing toward the sun, looking for the messenger. When he returns... Their lands and ancient dwelling place will be restored to them. That is the tradition. Among the engravings of animals in the cave is seen the image of a heart over the spot where it is located. The legend was learned by W.E. Rollins, the artist, during a year spent with the Hopi Indians. There are two theories of the origin of the Egyptians. Heron, an Egyptologist, believed in the Indian origin of the Egyptians. The discoveries in the Grand Canyon may throw further light on human evolution and prehistoric ages. And here we comment. To any experienced archaeologist, the story is an impossible mashup of Buddhist and Egyptian cultures. But to the readers of the Phoenix Gazette in 1909, it seemed entirely possible. After all, this was a time of invention, bringing faster trains, aeroplanes, automobiles, and even silent films and telephone and electric street lamps, and advancements in medicine and science. Anything was possible. These were some pretty incredible times when you think about it. A cave in the Grand Canyon, containing an ancient foreign culture? Why not? We'll return with our story, right after these sponsor messages. And now, back to our story. The 20 years or so approaching 1900, and following it, may have been years of fantastic discoveries, but they were also years of fantastic hoaxes. In 1912, amateur archaeologist Charles Dawson claimed that he had discovered the missing link between ape and man, announcing that he had found a section of a human-like skull in the Pleistocene gravel beds near Piltdown, East Sussex, England. He contacted Arthur Smith Woodward, keeper of geology at the Natural History Museum with this news, and that summer... Dawson and Smith Woodward purported to have discovered more bones and artifacts at the same site, which they connected to the same individual. These finds included a jawbone, more skull fragments, a set of teeth, and primitive tools. Smith Woodward reconstructed the skull and stated that it belonged to a human ancestor from 500,000 years ago. The discovery was introduced at a geological society meeting. The skull was given a name, Dawn Man, and the two men were pole vaulted into the rare air of famous geologists and explorers. Oh, there were skeptics, but to speak up against these brilliant scientists was for boot, and many of us know better than to challenge quote, known science, end quote, even today, if we want to keep our livelihoods. Nothing has changed in that respect. Anyway, in 1953, Time magazine got brave and decided to do some fact-checking to actually find the truth. In 1953, the print media felt that its job was to expose fraud regardless of who got embarrassed in the process. That was 70 years ago in America. They did some real digging, and found that the Piltdown fossil was a composite of three distinct species. A human skull of medieval age, no big deal, the 500-year-old lower jaw of an orangutan, and chimpanzee fossil teeth. Some creative person had created the appearance of age by staining the bones with an iron solution and chromic acid. Some had even gone so far as to file down the teeth to more resemble wear from a human diet. Whoops! Busted! Many fakes were then discovered in Dawson's collection. Later investigations showed that Dawson had used some valuable accomplices who were no doubt willing and ready to share in the profits gained from the notoriety in discovering the missing link. It should be noted that Charles Dawson died in 1916, so his glory days were short-lived. But his Piltdown Man hoax, but his down Man hoax lasted for over 40 years as known science. There was also the Cardiff Giant hoax. This one occurring in the latter half of the 19th century. This was one of the most famous archaeological hoaxes in history, which began with the reported finding of an anatomically correct 10-foot-tall, 3000-pound petrified man uncovered in October of 1869 during a well excavation in Cardiff, New York. Copies have been made through the years. The original is still on display at the Farmers Museum in Cooperstown, New York, which makes a side trip to the Baseball Hall of Fame or the Little League World Series a little more fun. The giant brought thousands of paying customers to the Little Burg of Cardiff. It was sold to a Syracuse investment group for $23,000, before Barnum & Bailey, offered a half a million dollars for it and were turned down. So Barnum & Bailey made a fake of it and brazenly called it the real fake. And it did real well. That fake inspired David Hannum of Barnum & Bailey's to issue the famous quote, There's a sucker born every minute. It was declared a fake fairly early on, but that never slowed down the popularity, maybe because of the supersized body parts that were open for viewing. Who knows? Who knows? And I'll never get around to it again, so I'll use a short paragraph to explain how and why the hoaxer did it. His name was George Hall. He was an ardent atheist. He got into an argument with a preacher one day about a Biblical account of Nephilim giants that are mentioned in Genesis. That argument led him to concoct a scheme whereby he could get rich off gullible Christians. So he enlisted his cousin, whose name was Stubb Newell, who owned a farm, and another man to carve out a giant man out of gypsum, and then to bury it on the farm. A year later, farmer Newell hired a team to excavate a well on the property, and lo and behold, up came the giant. Archaeologists immediately screamed foul, and Hull brazenly said, Yep, it is, but I'm taking it to the bank. And he did. The Cardiff giant was later mentioned in some short stories, including one of H.P. Lovecraft's stories called Out of the Eons. And by the way, I'm doing a Lovecraft novella right now called At the Mountains of Madness at 1001 Ghost Stories and Tales of the Macabre. So give a listen and you'll enjoy the story. It involves a fictional but believable archaeological find that puts an Antarctic expedition in serious jeopardy. That's 1001 Ghost Stories and Tales of the Macabre. As you already know, I'm not timid about plugging my shows. I'm not a sci-fi nut, but I like this story. It's great armchair and scotch listening for you Jesse Stone types. There's one more famous hoax that I'm betting you never heard before, but it was a doozy. Ever hear of the lost city of Moberly, Missouri? Here was the headline. A Lost City, the St. Louis, Missouri Evening Chronicle, April 8th, 1885. The article runs 10,000 words, so I'm just going to give you the headlines to the original and the follow-up, but it is amazingly similar to the Kincaid's Cave Story. The headline was printed entirely in caps. The most startling discovery of the age made by citizens of Moberly, Randolph County, Missouri, while sinking a shaft for coal mining, a veritable Pompeii, 360 feet below the Earth's surface, containing unquestionable evidence of human habitation, statuary, utensils, table, skilled masonry, etc., attest a remote but advanced age of civilization. A human skeleton of mammoth size discovered. A county recorder, city marshal, and other prominent citizens pay a visit to the wonderful subterranean city. And that's just the headline. Thus began a fantastic tale of a coal miner explorer named Tom Collins who dug down 360 feet and discovered an underground Pompeii. There lay a vast cavern of indescribable wonders, which, of course, were described in detail. A follow-up story titled, Not Half Told, told the other half of this rich tale, including a lost river, human remains, idols, medicine mortars, battle axes, Isis idols, and numerous relics. Some regional papers printed the story, others called BS, claiming it to be a miserable fabrication. Finally, in 1905, the Moberly Daily Monitor printed the real story. In it, they placed the hoax directly upon the former editor by then deceased, John J. Provines. He had hired a new city editor, a young hustler, and take that to mean anything you want, named Johnny Estes, who wanted fame and fortune and didn't want to wait long for it. Estes had been reading up on the discovery of Pompeii and came to Provines with an incredible story about a local find. Provines ate it up hook, line, and Zinker, and gave him 10,000 words to start. I forget now what the cost was per word back in those days, but it managed to line the city editor's pocket. It made a full page. Heads turned. Money rolled. Trains started arriving at Moberly with curiosity seekers asking for a tour of the underground city. Estes and Provines were made heroes as a result of the exposure, regardless of the fact that there was no mine to tour and no relics. It was just a local money-making joke to most, except the owner of the property, Tim Collins. He finally had to post a sign saying, No buried City lunatics allowed on these premises. All of which brings us to the real story of Kincaid's cave. This took quite a bit of digging, but it's a true gem and worth the effort. This story comes from the Old Pioneer, which is a biannual magazine of the Grand Canyon Historical Society. The story is titled, Ancient Egyptians in the Grand Canyon? It begins with President Eric Berg's letter, which reads in part, In March, I and several other members of the Grand Canyon Historical Society attended the Grand Canyon River Guide's annual guide training seminar near Lee's Ferry. We manned a GCHS information booth with membership forms and extra copies of the newsletter and Old Pioneer, and thus picked up a few new members. We also got to listen to a wide range of interesting presentations covering everything from the latest geologic theories to beach erosion to the lives of canyon beetles. Like the Grand History Symposiums supported by the GCHS, it was a great opportunity to meet with other canyon enthusiasts to share knowledge, discoveries, and stories. It was also a reminder that no matter how many times you visit the canyon and no matter how much you learn about it, there's always more to discover. The canyon's history and prehistory are as deep as the Vishnu Schist, as winding as the river, and as rich as a dessert at the El Tobar Dining Hall. And like the canyon, the region's history still contains many rarely explored areas, hidden corners, and lingering mysteries. While most of us can't hike the canyon every day, we can still continue to explore its vast history anytime we want through books, websites, and the articles of the GCHS newsletter and Old Pioneer. Regardless if you live five minutes from the rim or five time zones away, the canyon is always at your fingertips. No better example can be found than in this issue of The Old Pioneer where Don Lago takes us on a trip into one of the most fantastic until now unexplained corners of the canyon's history. So stop whatever you're doing. Turn off the TV. Put the chores off till tomorrow. Sit down on the sofa and pull on your mental hiking boots. It's time to take a quick trip to the canyon and be among the first to explore the true story behind a mystery that has spawned conspiracy theories and wild speculation for over a hundred years. Stories like this and the true history behind the stories are one of the many reasons we love this newsletter. And now we offer, in parts, Don Lago's article Looks Like a Mulhattan Story The Origins of the Grand Canyon Egyptian Cave Myth It begins In the years since 1992, some dramatic new Grand Canyon lore has emerged, mutated rapidly, taken on elaborate forms, and won a large, loyal following. This story appears on thousands of websites. It has been presented several times on a national radio show. It is now showing up in many books. It is well on the way to becoming a standard part of the Arizona landscape, at least the paranormal landscape. This story has the momentum to take a firmly rooted place alongside Roswell, the Sedona Vortexes, the Loch Ness Monster, and Atlantis. One thing about this story is absolutely true, that it was published on the front page of the Arizona Gazette on April 5, 1909, under the headlines Explorations in the Grand Canyon. And from this point on, we paraphrase. In 1962, as Lagos' essay goes, the story was rescued from obscurity by being included in the book Arizona Cavalcade, one of a series of five books of newspaper articles from early Arizona history. From there, it eventually came to the attention of David Hatcher Childress, author of Lost Cities of North and Central America, who related upon seeing the Kincaid cave story and was shocked to see that a whole section of Grand Canyon formations in the canyon had Egyptian names such as Isis Temple and the Tower of Ra. Childress contacted the Smithsonian and Grand Canyon National Park, and he discovered, as he said it, that they were conspiring in a diabolical cover-up of the truth. The ancient Egyptians were the masters of spiritual knowledge, their pyramids loaded with cosmic secrets. The Grand Canyon was nature's deepest revelation of primordial power and time. The combination of ancient Egypt and the Grand Canyon was just too much to resist. As theories have become more elaborate, so have claims of a cover-up by the Smithsonian and the National Park Service. Dave Hatcher Childress now claims that the Smithsonian had been destroying evidence of the Egyptians in America even towing a barge full of artifacts into the Atlantic and dumping them overboard. Others say that the National Park Service has closed the airspace in the canyon, hiking entry to the Egyptian zone and entry into all caves in order to hide Egyptian artifacts. In a period of five weeks in early 2008, listeners to Coast to Coast, the national paranormal radio show, heard David Hatcher Childress say that the Hopis had thrown acid into the eyes of Grand Canyon miner Seth Tanner to blind him and prevent him from finding the Egyptian cave. And heard giant expert Steve Quayle say that the occupants of the cave were giants, 12 to 14 feet tall, and that Quayle had met someone who swore he participated in removing the giant's mummies from the cave and taking them to Area 51. Does it ever occur to Egyptian cave believers that the Arizona Gazette story could have been a hoax? In fact, it does. Even David Hatcher Childress, in Lost Cities of North and Central America, admitted that when he first saw the story in Arizona Cavalcade, he, quote, bet it was fabricated by the author of that book. It sounds phony, end quote. Then Childress looked up the original Gazette article, and there it was in black and white, he said. This verdict is often stated on Egyptian cave websites, If a story appears on the front page of a newspaper, it must be true. The Egyptian cave story should have been big news for Arizona, eagerly repeated by other newspapers. A second Colorado River expedition. A major Smithsonian expedition to Arizona. Egyptians in Arizona. Yet the Gazette story was almost totally ignored by other Arizona newspapers. Of over a dozen newspapers checked for this article, only one, the Jerome Mining News, reprinted the story without comment only one newspaper Flagstaff's Coconino's son thought it was necessary to comment in a brief cover article on April 16th the Coconino's son ran the story looks like a Mulholland story for American newspaper readers in 1909 this said all that needed to be said by 1909 Joe Mulhattan, and his last name gets spelled in various ways had been famous for 30 years, famous for his hobby of tricking newspapers into publishing hoax stories. According to the Museum of Hoaxes, during the 1870s and 80s, Joseph Mulhattan was perhaps the most famous hoaxer in America. Joe was especially fond of, and famous for, inventing outlandish stories about discoveries of caves full of amazing artifacts from ancient civilizations. Sound familiar? In 1883, when Joe was just getting started, the American Antiquarian, an oriental journal, thought it prudent to issue a warning to archaeologists. This is how it read. Joe Mulhattan is a character of some interest in archaeologists. His residence is in Kentucky, and his business is to invent marvelous stories or lies. He has invented seven stories about finding big caves, Masonic emblems, and other ridiculous things. Another just sent to us from Eureka Springs, Arkansas, about an iron box and a skeleton chained in a cave, shows that he's still at work. In 1888, Joe Mulhattan was included in the book Prominent Men and Women of the Day, alongside Mark Twain, Walt Whitman, and Oscar Wilde. The book warned, when the readers meet with the circumstantial account of hidden rivers being found here or there, of vast bodies of water deep underground, he is exhorted to think of Mulhattan and the ethnologist and geologist are warned against believing all they see in newspapers about newly discovered works by prehistoric man. How many persuasively written and circumstantial fabrics of lies Mr. Mulhattan has written, probably, probably only their author knows. In 1891, the New York Times declared, Joe mulhattan is known in every city in the United States and has probably caused more trouble in newspaper offices than any other man in the country. His wild stories, written in the most plausible style, have more than once caused the special correspondence of the progressive journals of the United States to hurry from coast to coast to investigate some wonderful occurrence, which only existed in the imagination of that great liar. On December 12, 1881, the Chicago Inter-Ocean published a report of a new cave discovery at Litchfield, Kentucky, which included an Egyptian pyramid and hieroglyphs. It read... There are evidences on all sides that the cave was the abode of a prehistoric race and that that race was identified with the ancient Egyptian races. Joseph Mulhattan, geologist and scientist from Louisville, Kentucky, has visited the cave and secured several mummies and other specimens, but the pyramid and remaining wonders will remain untouched to be gazed upon by a wondering world. In truth, Joel Mulhattan was a traveling salesman, usually for hardware companies. A salesman needs to tell whoppers with a straight face, and Joe's wide travels provided him with plenty of raw materials for stories and access to many newspapers. In 1884, a National Convention of Traveling Salesmen was so proud of Joe's storytelling talents that they nominated him for President of the United States. In 1883, Mulhattan got wide circulation for a story about how Birmingham, Alabama had been built atop a thin crust of stone over a cave with a huge river flowing through it. The construction of a new building had punctured the crust, and several buildings had fallen into the cave. According to the Museum of Hoaxes, Mulhattan apparently concocted his hoaxes purely for the thrill of deceiving the media. He would send his stories to newspaper offices, and editors would usually accept them without question. Many editors probably realized the stories were false, but printed them anyway, knowing that they were amusing and that they would boost circulation. Mulhattan did lots of non-cave hoaxes, too. His first big hit hoax was his 1877 story about how George Washington's body had become petrified. For April Fool's Day in 1880, Mulhattan placed a story about a little girl who was given a batch of helium-filled balloons at a party. When she tied the balloons around her waist, they lifted her into the air. But luckily, an expert hunter was present and shot the balloons one by one to bring the girl down to a gentle landing. In 1883, Mulhattan passed off a story about a giant meteor hitting a Texas ranch and killing lots of cattle. In 1887, his story about a Kentucky farmer who was training monkeys to pick hemp brought a strong rebuke from the New York Times, which feared that the scab monkeys would take the jobs of former slaves. Manhattan may have had a hand in the story of David Lang, a Tennessee farmer who was walking across his field and simply vanished, in sight of many witnesses. A story that was given wide circulation by paranormal journalist Frank Edwards in the 1950s, and a story that is still alive today. Yet, Mulhattan enjoyed his cave hoaxes the most. In 1883, he told an interviewer, I'm prouder of my Glasgow cave story than any of the others. It showed more invention and more imagination. Mulhattan's cave hoaxes made such an imprint that when the Louisville Courier-Journal announced a legitimate cave discovery in 1887, it felt obligated to use the headline, Not a Mulhatton Story. Then there was Joe Mulhattan's Magnetic Cactus, in 1899, the Florence Tribune reported, Joe mulhattan was in Florence this week from the Ripsey country, where he has recently discovered a magnetic cactus. Its attractive powers are so great that it draws birds and animals to it and impales them on its thorny spikes. Mr. Mulhattan approached no nearer than 100 feet to the cactus, which is of the saguaro variety. Yet at that distance, it was all he could do to resist its influence to draw him to it. While in town he purchased a long rope, which he will tie around his body and four of his friends will take hold of it and allow him to approach near enough to minutely examine the wonder without danger. After and just before a great storm, the power of the cactus is indescribable. Cabs, birds, and young colts are attracted, impaled, drawn in, and quickly converted by the digestive juices of the cactus. You got to admit, Mohattan was creative the Coconino's Zun did express its admiration in its April 16th story. looks like a Manhattan story. The reported discovery of a mammoth underground city of an ancient race in the Grand Canyon seems to be a splendid piece of imagination sent out by some Mulhattanized individual. It would be just possible that someone at the Grand Canyon would have been informed of it if an actual discovery had been made. The man who wrote up the find certainly had to dig for the details, and was wise in locating the entrance at a point on a sheer wall where no one but a person with great imagination could reach it. The Arizona Gazette was a good fit for the Egyptian cave story. The Gazette had a flair for humor and sensationalism. On most days, its editorial page included jokes and brief tall tales. On April 8th, the Gazette announced, Astronomers on Mars reported at a recent meeting of the Society that observations of the Earth showed large patches of the lake region of the United States in the Western Hemisphere as going dry. The Gazette may have been having some extra fun with the Egyptian cave story by placing it right next to an advertisement from a local candy store. The advertisement ran for one week, offering a Phoenix-style Easter gift that could be shipped to friends back east. The gift was orange blossoms waxed to preserve them. In large letters, the ad was headlined, Orange Blossoms. According to the Museum of Hoax's entry on Joe Mulhattan, he was also widely known by his pseudonym, Orange Blossom. Thanks for joining us for Kincaid's Cave at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. We hope you enjoyed the story, and if you did, please do send us a review. Especially you Apple listeners. Reviews help new listeners find us, and we appreciate them very much. Join us next week, Sunday night at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, for a brand new episode of 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. Until that time, everyone, this is your host, John Hagedorn. Stay safe, avoid those man-eating cacti, and we'll be back soon.